following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, if you would, please take your Bibles with me and turn to the first chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to pick up at verse 57 of Luke chapter 1, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 1. Verse 57, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwell around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him. All the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. By the remission of sins. Through the tender mercy of our God. With which the day spring from on high has visited us. To give light to those who sit in darkness. And the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And we'll leave off the reading there. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before you on this day, we thank you for all that we've heard and all that we have sang today in praise of your great name. We thank you for the presence of your Spirit who is with us as you have promised that where your people gather to worship you, that you would be in the midst of us. And we pray that we would know the influences of the Holy Spirit, giving us understanding in your word, giving us light to see and, and stirring up our hearts to love and to fear you, increasing our faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. And we pray that Christ would be exalted in our midst today. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, Christmas is here. Christmas is upon us and it's a good time uh, to be reminded of the true meaning of the birth of Christ and his coming into the world. 
the story of his birth is, is given to us in Scripture, I think is very wonderful, beautiful, it's glorious. And it also consists of many different scenes and descriptions of how it impacted various people at the time. Now, most of the more traditional and well-known Christmas texts that we've considered and I've opened up at the Christmas season many times here throughout the years. But this morning, I want to focus on a passage that's less considered but still important. A hidden treasure, we might call it. A beautiful scene that I think is too easily passed over in the narrative of our Lord's birth. As we're given here, the circumstances surrounding our Lord's birth as they impacted a particular family in the hill country of Judea, specifically Mary's relative Elizabeth and her husband Zacharias. I remind you of the the background of all of these events. God made a covenant with David almost a thousand years before these events that included the promise of descendants to sit on his throne, and that ultimately from his lineage would come the Messiah, the Christ, who would save and rule over his people forever and who would extend his salvation to the ends of the earth. But for 400 years after that, just 400 years after those promises were made in 586 BC, the nation of Judah was completely destroyed by the Babylonians and carried off into captivity. The throne of David had fallen. And for 600 years now, the people of God had been asking, Lord, has your promises to David failed? You can read those kinds of sentiments in some of the later uh, prophets and in some of the later Psalms, in the book of Psalms. Will you ever raise up the fallen throne of David? Will the Messiah ever come to save us? And 600 years have gone by. And I was thinking about this, uh, trying to think of a picture that this is not really a great picture of it but I was thinking about the New York Jets and how they haven't had they haven't been in the playoffs for 13 years and my my son-in-law is a Jets fan and so that's a very depressing thing to be 13 years they haven't been in the play they haven't been in the playoffs and they had seven years in a row where they had losing seasons well 600 years have gone by a 600 year losing streak we might call it. For 600 years they'd been saying, well, maybe next season. Maybe next year. But very little had changed. However, Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. So it shouldn't surprise us that those to whom his coming was first revealed, and those who truly believed and truly understood not just the the material aspects but the the spiritual significance of what it meant that they were lost in wonder, love, and praise. They were ecstatic with joyful song and praise to God. In fact, someone has commented that these opening chapters of Luke are like a duet from an oratorio. We have Mary's song just before our passage. Then we have the praise of the shepherds. We have the song of Simeon. And here in our text today, we have the song of Zacharias, and then later, uh, joining in the praise, we have the chorus of the angels. Well, I remind you, if you don't remember who these, these people are, that Zacharias and Elizabeth are an elderly and godly couple living in the hill country of Judea. Zacharias is a priest, 
And his wife Elizabeth has been barren all the years of their marriage, and now she's too old to have children. But one day, while Zacharias was performing his priestly tasks, the angel Gabriel appears to him. And the angel announces that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a son in their old age, and that this son will be the one who was predicted in the prophets by Malachi and also by Isaiah, who would come, who would be the forerunner, preparing the way for the Messiah who is about to appear. And this son is later known as John the Baptist. Well, you may remember that Zacharias, he can't believe it, he refuses to believe it. And so God chastens him by striking him with dumbness. Uh, He can't speak. And then immediately after that, that event, our attention is drawn in the narrative north to a little uh, nowhere backwater place called Nazareth in Galilee. And it's just a few months later. And this time the angel Gabriel appears to a young virgin, a relative of Elizabeth, probably her niece or grandniece. And the angel announces to her as well that the time has come. The time long promised by the prophets. And he announces that she, a virgin, will conceive a son, and this son will be none other than the promised Christ. Well, after that, Mary hurries off on a long journey uh, from Nazareth, which is up in Galilee, to the hill country of Judah in the south to visit her aunt Elizabeth. And when she gets there, the faith of both, both of them is strengthened and confirmed. And it's in that context that Mary breaks forth in that wonderful song of praise that's been called the Magnificat, beginning with the words, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. But now in our passage this morning, which immediately follows that, the time has come for Elizabeth to give birth to her baby, this one who is to be the forerunner, preparing the way for Christ. And it's in this context that the tongue of Zacharias is loosed, to join into this chorus of praise, and we have the second major song recorded in the Gospel of Luke, what's been called the Benedictus, in verses 68 to 79. And so our focus this morning then is going to be on the circumstances surrounding these events, the birth of John the Baptist, and then we'll look briefly and we'll focus in on some of the main lines of thought in Zacharias's song of praise. So as we begin to look at this, Consider with me, first of all, the joy shared at the birth of the child who is to be born. Speaking here of John the Baptist, the forerunner. We read in verse 57 to 58, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. And and I I really love these little windows that were given from time to time, into the social life and in the fellowship and the relationships of God's ordinary people during those days. Here are just common, ordinary, poor folks in the hill country of Judah. And with all of the apostasy that marked so many of the people in Israel at that time, especially the political and the the religious leaders, it's good to remember that God still had a faithful remnant scattered here and there in little communities throughout the land. And it's it's refreshing to be given these little glimpses from time to time 
into their lives. It reminds me of what we see in the book of Ruth, you remember, in the, in the days when the judges ruled and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a very evil time in the book of Ruth. We're given this little glimpse of this little community of sincere believers who followed and sought to live lives of integrity and obedience to, to their God. And here we see a window into this, this group of people in this little area, this little part of Judea. And it's an encouragement to us to remember that no matter how bad things get, God always has his remnant. He always has his people. And his church will ultimately be, be victorious. It will never be stamped out. And even in the worst of times, you know, we don't see, we don't see them on Fox News and CNN. Uh, you know, if, we, if all we ever do is watch the news, we'll be depressed all the time. But God has his people everywhere. He has his people here this morning. And God's kingdom is still progressing in the world. And we can be encouraged as we see these little windows into God's dealings with these ordinary common people in the hill country of Judea. So Elizabeth's friends and relatives were told rejoiced with her over the birth of this child. And they acknowledged the merciful hand of the Lord in it all. Let me read that again. It says, When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. There's, there's a simple lesson here that J.C. Ryle underscores in his commentary. He says, We see in the conduct of Elizabeth's friends and relatives what he calls a striking example of the kindness we owe to one another. The kindness we owe and should show to one another as God's people as we share our lives together. As Christians, we're not intended to be lone rangers in the world all alone by ourselves. We're intended to be part of a community of God's people in which we are sharing our lives with one another, sharing our sorrows and sharing our joys. We're exhorted in Romans 12:15 to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who who rejoice. And this is one of the things I'm so thankful for in our church. It's one of the blessings of a healthy fellowship of God's people, the deliberate efforts of God's people to share in one another's joys, to share in one another's sorrows. And, and that's a ministry that every one of us can be involved in. You don't have to have great gifts to be involved in that kind of ministry. You don't have to have great talents to love your brothers and sisters in this way, and little things can go a long way. Cards, notes, kind words, helping out, prayers, participating in events like funerals and weddings and rejoicing at the birth of children and babies, baby showers, wedding showers, hospital visits, sharing in, in the mourning and the grief of those of our brothers and sisters when they lose a loved one, sharing in the joys and sorrows of one another. We're all meant to be a part of that. If you're here today and you're a professing Christian, you're not plugged into a Christian church where you're, you're engaging in that kind of fellowship and relationships with God's people. It's God's will that you should be, that you would be, and you ought to be. So we see this, first of all, the joy shared at the birth of Elizabeth's baby. But then notice, secondly, the striking circumstances of the giving of his name. First of all, the setting in which he was named. Verse 59 says, So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. Under the old covenant, as many of you know, it was required by the law of Moses that every male child in Israel was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this was the sign of membership 
in the covenant community of Old Covenant Israel. So the day has come for the baby to be circumcised, and we also, again, we find in that context all the friends and relatives have showed up for the occasion, again, rejoicing with those who rejoice. But then we have, secondly, a bit of disagreement that arose. We might even call it something of a controversy, a bit of a hullabaloo, hullabaloo over what this child should be named. Picking up in the middle of verse 59, and they, that is their friends and relatives, would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. And you see that this was the common, the accepted practice in those days. You always name your firstborn son after his father or at least after his grandfather, or at least uh, very, after a very close relative. So naturally, this is what they all expected. That's just the way things are supposed to be done and have always been, been done in, in our community, in our family. So you picture this scene here. All of the friends and the family, they're all there rejoicing in the birth of the child. They're, they're looking at the new baby, and they're, they're ooing and, and aweing, perhaps holding him passing him around, and you can just hear them, isn't baby Zach such a cutie? How wonderful, little Zacharias Jr., and so on. But we read that his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. Elizabeth is very firm. She's emphatic about this. No, you don't. He is to be called John. John means uh, God is gracious, or God has been gracious, and that's the name you may remember that the angel had assigned to him when he told of his coming birth to Zacharias, that he shall be called John. And Elizabeth knew that. It was God's will and God's command that the child be named John. And Elizabeth wants to obey God, even though it wasn't the accepted custom, and even though it upset some people in the family. Well, family and friends begin to protest. You think, well, can I name my child what I want to? But... They begin to protest. This is just not the way things are done. Verse 61, But they said to her, there is no, There's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. They couldn't understand this. You must name him Zacharias. This is the only way to carry on Zacharias' name. Calling the baby John makes no sense at all. It's not even a family name. And don't you care what the rest of the family thinks? Well, Elizabeth was under quite a bit of pressure. You know, Luke's just giving us little snippets of the conversation. There's all this pressure being put upon her, but she held her ground. Well, in their consternation, they they don't give up. They go to Zacharias, verse 62. Elizabeth's not cooperating. Surely Zacharias will be more reasonable. Now, you, you remember that for at least the last nine months previous to this, Zacharias has been mute. He's been unable to speak. Uh, and indications are he was unable to hear as well. And this had suddenly come upon him as a chastening from God. When the angel came to Zacharias to announce that his elderly wife would have a son, he wouldn't believe it, even though he was a godly man. And we were told before that that Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, chapter 1, verse 6. And yet this otherwise godly man gave way to unbelief. He just couldn't see how it could be wasn't possible for her to have a child. Well, what happened? God chastened him for his unbelief. Chapter 1, verse 20, And the angel said to him, But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And that's what happened. 
He was struck dumb and also deaf, and he's been that way now for at least nine months. So the family and friends, they come to Zacharias. You know, dear, dear Elizabeth perhaps is a bit beside herself at the moment. Having just given birth and with all of the excitement and everything, Zacharias will set things straight. Verse 62, so they made signs to his father what he would be called. They play charades, as it were, with Zacharias until he's able to understand what they're asking. And so we have the setting in which the child is named. We have the disagreement over his name. And then thirdly, we have the emphatic and surprising confirmation of his name by Zacharias in verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. And Zacharias is as stubborn about the child's name as Elizabeth was. Again, he's very emphatic. And you see this even more clearly in the Greek text, in the word order. Actually, the first word that he wrote on the tablet was John. John is his name. And notice he didn't write, what do you think about the name John? Or, we were thinking about naming him John. He also didn't write, John will be his name. He wrote, John is his name. This is the name God has given to the child to express his true identity. And in Zacharias' thinking, it was already his name. It was his name from the time he was first conceived in the womb. And I refer to this as the emphatic and also the surprising confirmation of his name. Because notice at the end of verse 63, it says, So they all marveled. Why did they marvel? Well, it seems this was shocking to everyone for at least two reasons. One, they marveled that Zacharias actually agreed with Elizabeth in giving this child such a name. And two, they marveled at the firmness of Zacharias' reply. You see, Elizabeth, and here's the point. Elizabeth and Zacharias, though they no doubt deeply loved their friends and loved their family, they were still determined to obey God even if their friends and family didn't understand, even if at first it offended them. And then we have, fourthly, something amazing that suddenly happened. We have the immediate restoration of Zacharias' speech. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. And there Luke gives us the fact that he began to praise God, and later, as we'll see in a moment, he gives us the content of his praise, which we'll look at. He spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now before we go further, let me just pause to mention a couple of lessons here. First of all, we're reminded that sometimes we must be willing to disappoint even our closest relatives and family in order to obey God. And there are many of you probably here this morning, I know there are, who can relate to the uncomfortable situation and the pressure that Elizabeth and Zacharias felt. Now the issue or the issues might be different, of course, but many of you know what what it's like to be in situations in which pleasing our family or pleasing God come into conflict. Especially when it's family members who are not believers But this can even happen in the context where they are believers, right? In fact, these awkward situations, they often occur during the holidays, don't they? Now, we should always be sensitive to our families. 
We should be as kind and agreeable as we can toward them, and we should try to explain ourselves and do so graciously and all of that. But the example of Elizabeth and Zacharias reminds us that ultimately, when it comes down to it, we must obey God. And there are a number of issues in which we can find ourselves faced with the very same kind of, of uh, pressure that Elizabeth and Zacharias were under. It's, it's the family tradition. It's always been done that way. And you know that it may not go over well if you don't participate. So you're faced with a dilemma. Will I cave into the family's wishes or will I obey God at the risk of upsetting people? Which are you going to do? Well, learn from the example of this couple that we must obey God rather than men, even if the men or the women are our closest relatives or friends whom we dearly love. And again, we find ourselves as Christians in some uncomfortable situations. It can be issues related to the the observance of the Lord's Day, entertainment events, various activities, issues related to how we raise our children. Friends have their expectations. The family has its expectations. Sometimes they just don't understand, and sometimes they can be a bit pushy about it. So how do you respond? Well, don't make the mistake of being ugly about it and disrespectful but on the other hand with all of the kindness that you can don't cave in either they might be upset at first but some of us who have been in the way for a long time can tell you that by by experience uh, that they'll eventually get used to it they have to right and if you're kind faithful cooperative friend or family member in every other way that you can with a good conscience and they see that over time, and they observe over time a consistent, winsome Christian testimony, often they'll actually begin to respect your convictions. But don't do like so many Christians do and let your family or your friends' wishes become an excuse for disobeying and dishonoring your Savior. Remember what Jesus said, He who loves father or mother or sister or brother more than me is not worthy of me. And then secondly, we also see in the example of Zacharias here, the good effects of God's discipline in the lives of his children. Zacharias is not the same man that he was nine months before this. The chastening hand of God has produced positive effects in his life. The discipline of affliction, the discipline of dumbness and deafness for nine months was not inflicted upon him in vain. He's no longer faithless but believing. He now believes every word that the angel spoke to him, and he's determined that every word of his message is to be obeyed. And he's also learned a lot of other things that will come bursting out of his mouth in glorious praise and tremendous spiritual insight in the verses that follow. God's discipline, God's chastening, had done its work in Zacharias. Now try to imagine what it was like for this man. For the nine months he couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. At first, especially, it must have been torture for him. Think of him groaning under his trial, kicking himself. Why didn't I believe God's word? When it first became apparent that Elizabeth was indeed pregnant, as her belly gradually began to swell over the weeks and months, it it must have been like one long rebuke to his unbelief. Why was I so skeptical? How proud and foolish I was. How stupid. I even talked back to God's messenger. How could I do something like that? But Zacharias also began to experience the benefit of 
the silence and solitude of his affliction. As another has put it, commenting on our passage, Zacharias had had nine months of silence to brood and ponder and pray and meditate on the Bible, the Old Testament. His silence may have been a divine rebuke for unbelief, but God always turns his rebukes into rewards for those who keep faith. And listen, remember that you who right now suffer the scars of past sins. He says, remember that you who right now suffer the scars of past sins. Keep trusting God and he will turn the marks of sin into memorials of grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Romans 5.20. Well, so it was for Zacharias. Zacharias has had nine months to reflect on his folly, but also nine months to pray, to meditate, to think deeply upon God's word. And as he did so, it began to get through to him. The amazing, the wonderful, the, the important things that were taking place at that time in history. And we see later in his song of praise that he began to see that God is fulfilling his covenant promises to David and to Abraham and through the prophets long ago that salvation is coming. The Savior, the day spring from on high, is about to arise and to give light to those who sit in darkness, the forgiveness of sins through the tender mercy of our God and deliverance from all the enemies of our souls. And finally, when the silence is broken and the affliction is lifted, it all comes bursting out of him like a mighty torrent. And I'm going to say two things here as a lesson for us. One, let me, let you, let us also be those who profit from the chastening hand of our Heavenly Father. Those who profit from our trials and afflictions. Trials and afflictions and chastenings from God are a means of grace. That means they're, they're one of the means God uses by which he works in our hearts to strengthen our faith and to conform us to the image of Christ. They are means of his grace working in our lives. They're, but they're not automatically such. It partly depends upon how we respond to them. Many people, in fact, most people in the world experience difficulties and afflictions in hard circumstances in their lives, but they never profit from them. Instead, they're only hardened by them. And then some are like the stony ground hearers in our Lord's parable of the sower. They, they seem in their life to respond positively to the gospel at first, but because the root of the matter was never in them, when trials and afflictions come, they fall away. Divine chastening and trials are only a means of grace to God's believing people. And only insofar as we respond to them properly. We trust in submission to our loving Heavenly Father when He brings these things upon us. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 12.6 when he says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord for whom the Lord loves. He chastens. He goes on, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And here we have a perfect example of this in Zacharias. And my dear brother or sister here today, whatever your trial may be, and I know we have many in our own congregation who are going through some very, very hard and difficult trials and afflictions and painful circumstances, whatever it may be, whether whoever you are today, whether it be the corrective discipline of God or just the formative discipline that he brings into the lives of all of his children, whatever your trials at present may be, hold on to the Lord Jesus. Don't lose heart. Don't cast off your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Submit to the loving hand of your heavenly Father, knowing that he is working all of these things together for your good. It doesn't mean they're all good. You know, we, we can say that so glibly sometimes. It, it doesn't, that, that text doesn't say that everything that happens to us is good. No, there's a lot of really bad things that happen to God's people. Terrible sufferings that can happen to God's people. We're not immune from the afflictions of this life. It's not that all these things are good, but it's that God overrules them in his providence to bring good out of them ultimately in our lives, whether in a temporal sense or in an eternal sense. The Lord is at work, and he never leaves or forsakes his people. And so let us, let us be like Zacharias and not butt up against God's chastening, but submit to the loving hand of our Heavenly Father that we might profit from the trials that he brings into our lives. And there's one other thing I want to mention here, and I know, think, what does all this have to do with Christmas? Well, it all has to do with the coming of Christ, doesn't it, and his work in our lives. One other thing here, quite apart from the chastening element of what Zacharias experienced, at any time in our life, any time, there's great benefit to be gained from periods of silence and solitude. Zacharias had nine months to think and to think deep thoughts about God, to gain insights into his word, to spend more focused, undistracted time in prayer during those months when he was deaf and dumb than perhaps any other time in his life. And I just want to say this, sometimes as Christians, we need to be deaf and dumb for a while if we're ever going to make real progress in our walk with Christ. If, if there's ever going to be any spiritual depth in our lives. Someone has put it this way, there's a close correlation between stillness and a sense of the stupendous. The most astonishing things about reality will probably be missed by those who use the radio and TV for a constant background drone. Or we could add, for those who can't be separated from their cell phone or their video games long enough to give lengthy, undivided attention to reading God's Word, meditating upon His truth, and seeking His face in deliberate, focused prayer. God says through the psalmist, Be still and know that I am God. Be deaf and dumb for a while and know that I am God. Well, we consider the joy shared at the birth of the baby John, the striking circumstances at the giving of his name. And now thirdly, let's look at Zacharias's song of praise. Now I'm not going to, to dig into it in, in great detail, not because it's not worthy of it, uh, but because our time is limited. 
I want to kind of survey a couple of the main lines of emphasis in this song at this Christmas season. There are a couple of things about this song of praise that I think it would do us well to draw our attention to. It's full of the gospel. The good news about Christ, God the Son, who has come into the world. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, there's nothing that you need during this Christmas season more than the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message about the way that you can, the only way that you can ever be saved, that you can ever be forgiven of your sins and delivered and reconciled to God and be made right with God. And even if you're already a Christian, there's nothing you need more than the gospel. We need to be constantly reminded of the gospel. We need to grow in our understanding of the gospel and to have our faith strengthened and more assured in the gospel. Well, notice a couple of points of emphasis in Zacharias' song of praise. First of all, this song tells us about the salvation Christ gives and that that salvation is for those who are lost, who are sinners, and are in a desperate condition. And that's the condition of all of us by nature. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. For there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. Notice now, looking at this song in verse 68, at the beginning of Zacharias' song, Christ is described as redeeming his people. For he has visited and redeemed his people. To re- what does that mean? To redeem means to deliver by the payment of a price. And as we learn later in the gospel story, the price that Jesus paid to deliver us and to save us from our sins was the shedding of his own blood on the cross as the sinner's substitute. When he suffered and died on that cross, he was bearing our sins. He received the punishment that we deserve from God in our place in order to redeem us and to deliver us from it. God's wrath And eternal damnation is hanging over us because of our sins. But God in his love and in the person of his son came down to deliver sinners from the wrath his justice demands by pouring out that wrath on Jesus Christ in our place. So that God can remain holy and just and yet forgive us and save us and receive us as his children. So you see, his coming to redeem us implies that we are sinners. Under judgment, slaves who are unable to deliver ourselves. Notice in verse 71, he's described as saving us from our enemies. Again, verse 78, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Now certainly being still an old covenant saint and and in this song still speaking of points in old covenant terms, uh, Zacharias was thinking in part of their temporal enemies. But there's more to it than that. There's that to which the old covenant nation of Israel's temporal enemies were pointing to, were both a picture of and a type of. There are the enemies of your soul. And the Bible speaks often of them. You have enemies seeking to destroy you and to drag you to hell. Satan, if you're unconverted this morning, you've never been born again, you're not in Christ, Satan has you in his grip, my friend. 
The Bible says, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine on them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 He's described as like a roaring lion, walking about, seeking, whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 But then also the curse of the law, the condemnation of God's broken law that hangs over you, is also your enemy, because you have broken God's law times without number. And as God's word declares, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that curse is hanging over every person here this morning who is not in Christ Jesus. And there's another great enemy. Death and hell that awaits you in the world to come unless you are rescued from it. You need to be saved from your enemies. You also need to be delivered from darkness. The darkness that fills your heart. The darkness that is blinding you. Look at verses 78b and 79. The day spring, it says, speaking of Christ, has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our path into the way of peace. Without Christ, you are walking in darkness, blinded by sin and by Satan, and there is no peace. No peace with God, and you're also a stranger to the peace of God in your soul. You need this light. You need this peace that Jesus Christ gives. And my friend, you're a sinner who also desperately needs forgiveness. Verse 77, it says, He has come to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission or the forgiveness of their sins, the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of God. God, this is the salvation that every one of us desperately need. This is the salvation that you desperately need, my friend. You're in darkness, guilty, lost, in bondage to the guilt of your sin and the punishment of your sin that you're not going to be able to get away from. You're going to meet it on the day of judgment. And it's hanging over you. And you're, you're enslaved to the dominating power of unbelief and sin over your life. Satan has you in his clutches. The curse of the law hangs over you. Hell awaits you, and you cannot deliver yourself. This is the desperate condition of every one of us by nature, but praise God, these are the kind of people that Christ came to save. He came to redeem. He came to deliver by the payment of a price, the price of his own shed blood and sufferings upon the cross. He came to deliver us from our enemies to give light to those who sit in darkness, to guide our feet into the way of peace, and to give the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of our sins through the tender mercy of our God. That's what our text tells us. And he also came to change us. Praise God, when he saves us, he doesn't just leave us where we are. He makes us new. When he gives the gift of faith, he also gives the gift of repentance. And we become the glad and willing servants of our king for the rest of our days. Verses 74 and 75. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. This is the salvation Christ came to accomplish. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what the birth of Christ is about. This is what he came to do. This is the salvation that we all desperately need. But then notice, secondly, something else about this song of praise. 
Zacharias, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he also declares that this salvation is entirely of God. It's entirely of God. In other words, it's not something that we can do for ourselves. Or that we must do for ourselves. This is God acting. This is God taking the initiative to come to us and to rescue us. It's not about trying hard. And if you try hard enough, you can bring God into your debt in some way. It's not about trying to do better. And if you do, then God may respond to your initiative and to your efforts to be, and be merciful to you. No, this is God acting in human time and space. It is God alone who saves. And He saves entirely by grace. He takes the initiative and He comes to us in Jesus Christ, just as we are. And He reaches down to where we are. And He saves sinners. Notice how often this comes out in the language of Zacharias' praise, if you have your Bibles open. Verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Now he's using what's called the prophetic past tense. That is, speaking of what is about to happen as if it had already occurred. And now as we sit here today, it has occurred. Christ has been born. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Come to save sinners. And this is described here as God visiting and redeeming his people. God visited us. We didn't go searching for him. He saw our helpless condition and he took pity on us even though we don't deserve it. And he came down to meet our need in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. He has visited us. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Verse 72, he has performed the mercy promised to our fathers. He acted in fulfillment of his covenant promise to David. Verse 69, and in fulfillment of his promises through the prophets. Verse 70, and all of them looking back to his covenant promise to Abraham, verses 72 to 73, that through his seed, through his descendant, one who would come through the lineage of Abraham, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. This is what Zacharias is talking about when he mentions these things. He has remembered his covenant. It's God who made the covenant, not us. And it is God who does it because he has chosen to do so. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. It's not earned. It's not deserved by us. It never was and it never will be. It finds its source, verse 78, in the tender mercy of our God. Now what a beautiful phrase there. Describing the compassionate heart of God towards sinners. The tender mercy of God. Our God. We have two words there in the Greek. We have the standard word for mercy, which speaks of God's pity and his compassion toward those in need. And when it's directed to sinners, it's his pity and compassion toward those who don't deserve it. But here we also have a second word joined to it. It's translated tender. And it's a Greek word that literally refers to the bowels. And it's usually described the churning of the bowels. And it... And it and it, it's a figurative way of speaking of deep-seated, deeply felt affection and feeling. Tender mercy. The salvation that God gives to sinners in Christ flows out of, we're being told here, the deep-seated, 
compassion and tender affection of his heart. And it's not based upon anything we have to do to deserve it, anything we must do to earn it. All we've ever deserved is wrath and hell, but God sent Christ into the world to save, not good people, but to save sinners. And he sent him straight from the tender mercy and compassion of his heart. And how do we become partakers of this salvation? My lost friend here this morning as I close, do you want this salvation? That Zacharias is so thrilled about? That Mary sang about earlier? This salvation that the birth of Christ is all about? That the Bible is given to us to reveal to us? Do you want this? Do you want to know that it's yours? Do you want to know that your sins have all been forgiven? That you're reconciled to God? That your sins have been buried in his tomb? That they were dealt with once and for all, put away? Do you want to know that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord? Do you want this? How can it be yours? The Bible is very clear. Ephesians 8 2, 8, and 9, for by grace, grace means God's favor to those who don't deserve it, but who deserve the opposite. For by grace you are saved, through faith, in that not of ourselves. Listen, it is the gift, it is the, talking about a Christmas gift. It is the gift of God, not of works. It's not based on what we do. It's not something we earn and must earn. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. It's by grace. God's free unmerited favor to those who deserve the opposite. And it's a free gift that is received. How do you receive a gift? You receive it with the empty hand of faith. God extends this Christ and his salvation to you in the gospel. And faith takes it. Faith believes this gospel and says yes and takes it and embraces this Christ as my Savior. Faith believing in and receiving this great Savior that God has sent to save sinners as your own, receiving Him to yourself as your Savior, your Lord. My friend, believe the good news of the gospel. Come to this Christ leaving behind every other trust and every other hope, come to Him, trusting in Him alone for this salvation from the guilt, from the penalty, from the power, dominating power of sin over your life, to reconcile you to God, to keep you and preserve you all the way to His heavenly kingdom. Come, trusting Him to do so. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture says, and you shall be saved. This is God's promise You know what? You too, like Mary, like the angels, or like Zacharias, like Simeon, you'll begin to feel this urge in your soul to want to praise Him. To join in this chorus of praise. You say, what do I need to do to qualify for this? To qualify for this salvation? The only qualification you need is that you're a sinner who desperately needs it. 
Some of you may have heard about the great Christian doctor Bernardo who once uh, ran an orphanage in London. And one day he was approached by a dirty, ragged little boy asking for admission into the orphanage. The doctor looked at him and said, But my boy, I don't know you. What do you have to recommend you? The boy was not only needy, he was also bright. So he quickly held up before Dr. Bernardo his ragged coat. And with confident voice he said, If you please, sir, I thought these here would be all I needed to recommend me. Dr. Bernardo called him up in his arms and took him in because that really was all he needed to recommend him, his filthy rags and his desperate need. And my friend, that's all you need to recommend you to Christ. We contribute nothing to our salvation but the filthy rags of our sin and our need. It is Christ who does the saving. And he has promised that any sinner, any sinner, whoever they may be, who comes to him, he will by no means cast them out. Bless his holy name. This is what Christmas is about, right? This is the message that we have to take to a lost world. May our Lord help us to do so. May he help us as his people, even those of us who are believers today, to believe this even more confidently and with a full assurance of faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your holy word. We thank you for such a great Savior and such a great salvation that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that we can celebrate the holidays however we may choose to do so. We can only do so we can only celebrate anything. Lord, uh, we can only have joy in any way because of what Christ has done for us. For Lord, without Him, we would be in darkness, we would be doomed, we would be damned and condemned forever. But how we thank You that light has shone in the darkness and You have given us eyes to see. Lord, we pray for anyone here today who has yet to come to Christ and to know this salvation. We pray for them that you would, Lord, draw them effectually to yourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.